welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. On today's episode of Boss Ladies, please welcome Colleen Tice. Colleen is Chief Operating Officer at The Orchard, an industry-leading music distribution company where Colleen oversees daily business activities across more than 40 offices globally. In this episode, Colleen talks about how to make a global impact, strategies for overcoming imposter syndrome, and tangible solutions for being a better ally in the workplace. Welcome, Colleen. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies. I'm excited to have you. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So can you start by telling me about your career journey and how you got to your role as COO at The Orchard? Sure. So I uh, had a very non-traditional career path. I think if I had to summarize it in a sentence, I would say that I followed my passions wherever they they took me and it was a very non-traditional route, you know. So I started in the music business later than most people. I was 28 years old. After college, I graduated and started into a string of dead-end jobs trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. <laughs> you know, I uh, I worked in TV production for a cable company, producing really early and and very rough content. I waited tables. I worked in human resources at a bank. I did corporate communications. I was in PR. I managed painters and photographers. And, you know, somewhere in there, uh, it's like, what the hell am I doing? Right. So (laughs) I I slowed down for a minute and I stopped thinking about like how I was going to pay my rent. And I started thinking about what I really wanted to do with my life. And I'd always wanted to be in music, but I'd never really knew the right path to get there. So, you know, this is also sort of early stage internet. You know, there weren't, um, there wasn't a monster job board or anything like that. (laughs) So I just packed out my stuff and I moved to New York, moved in with some friends from college. Um, I actually slept in sort of a balcony area off the living room, like a little loft situation. (laughs) So uh, that was above one of the proper bedrooms, which was really hived off from part of the living room. So it was three of us in what was meant to be a two bedroom space uh, with one and a half baths. And it was um, very tight, a lot of fun, (laughs) Upper West Side. And I just dove in and into New York life and started meeting people. And I actually got a job working in the, the public library system doing corporate communications and programming events. And through that, I made contact with LL Cool J's manager, Run DMC's manager, different people like this. And and through those connections, I met a woman named Eileen who worked in the Fuji's management company. And she let me know about a job that was opening up an entry-level job at at Electra Records at that time in the international department as the international coordinator. Very cool. Yeah. So I you know, dusted off my resume and my interview outfit and um, <laughs> showed up at the office of the hiring director. And he was stunned by my business attire (laughs) because it wasn't really that kind of industry, of course. You know, I'd been coming from a much more buttoned up type of environment. We were the same age. 
And he was a director and I was going to be coming in as a coordinator. But he said, you know what? Like, I can see you really want to do this. So let's go for it. So we started our new jobs on the same day. He is the director and myself as his coordinator at Electra in the international department. And um, it was amazing because he really let me just take on all the admin, (laughs) which was really essential to kind of get to know the nuts and the bolts of the business. So it's doing things like budgeting and planning promo trips, you know, working out all the logistics for those, gathering international marketing information from all the different territories and collating it into what he called the living, breathing document, his report, (laughs) you know, fielding calls from artists and managers setting up. We had all kinds of star power, you know, filing through the office. It was, it was pretty exciting, but also, you know, the pay was terrible and (laughs) and the hours were super long and it was sometimes sort of demoralizing, you know, but I, I think that first two years actually gave me a really good scope for what I knew I wanted to do next in the business and what I knew I didn't want to focus on. So taking that, then I was able to parlay it into my next role, which was something that was a bigger role at a smaller company doing international marketing for an independent record label. And that job actually required that I that I move out of New York to Philadelphia, which, you know, was taking me out of my comfort zone again, because I really, really loved living in New York. And I just moved to Brooklyn. It's a really cool place, you know, <laughs> all my friends. But I just sort of dove in and, and did it because I thought, well, you know, this is the step that I need to take to get to the next place. And that company was a, a label called Ryko Disc. And that enabled me to travel really all over the world and, and take on anything that they couldn't find another home for, you know, because uh, that's the way independent labels work. It's much smaller environment and people really get stuck in across the entire life of the artist's career and, and the business and the creative side. So I learned a whole lot and, you know, got to uh, meet all kinds of people from all around the world and work literally all kinds of music. You know, we had like Mickey Hart's drums. We had uh, Josh Rouse, in, you know, singer songwriter. We had Morphine, which was a really amazing band from the Boston area. Frank Zappa's catalog. We had literally like a huge catalog of releases to work with, thousands and thousands of records. So yeah, it was awesome. That's very cool. Wow, <laughs> that was eleven years, right? <laughs> Do you want me to go on? Yeah, or no? no, please keep going. This is so interesting. I mean, it's interesting to see how much you've you've been involved in sort of international projects because a lot of your work here has been, you know, expanding our company. So it's interesting to hear how you've been doing that. Yeah, that was something that the international piece was something that really cemented in my career from the very first job and has always been a passion of mine. I traveled as much as I could when I was younger. And I also did some time abroad in in university. So I always wanted to incorporate that into my career, whatever it was. And I have to say, I went to a liberal arts university and I studied art history and anthropology, Latin American studies with a major in broadcast journalism. I mean, literally the only place that it would have made sense for me to work would have been somewhere like National Geographic or something. But I think having that kind of really varied background gave me the insight into, you know, both obviously the history of the world and like also how different cultures interact with each other and um, how we really can be a global village. And so that was always I always wanted to have a bigger purview in my job, whatever it was, than just sort of thinking about the city I lived in or the country that I lived in. That's awesome. And so then (laughs) the orchard. Right. Well. So the orchard came about through my work with Ryko Disc because Ryko had moved me to London 
as part of the job to help kind of um, expand on the distribution network that we had across Europe and, and also in other territories around the world. So I was based in London from 2001 until 2013. And in that time, then Ryko Disc, before it was acquired by Warner Music, uh, was an independent label that was a target of distributors like The Orchard. But we had never distributed anything digitally before because we were, a, you know, established independent label with a big catalog and a lot of stuff. Actually, we were the first all CD label. No way. That's <laughs> yeah. so cool, though. <laughs> so, so I actually met Brad very early on. Brad's our CEO at The Orchard at Medem, a conference when he came saying, hey, you know, you should give us your digital rights through The Orchard because, you know, they're just sitting there. You're not doing anything with it. And this was right around when iTunes launched, like 2004, maybe early 2005, January 2005. And I got really excited by the prospect and brought it back to our, our CEO at the time. And of course, what I didn't know is that Ryko Disc was up for sale <laughs> to Warner <laughs> Music. So he wasn't going to make any moves. But yeah. also, um, you know, he kind of shut me down a little bit about, hey, you know, that digital thing, it's just like a passing fad. Forget about it. Like, we're in the CD business here. So... Obviously, no, nothing ever happened with that, with uh, Ryko Disc in the Orchard. But I did make some really great contacts with with Brad and other people at the company, and even also the Orchard's main competitor at the time, IOTA, um, which was the other big digital distributor in the space. I remember going to their office, uh, the Orchard's office in New York for a meeting, and they whiteboarded out for me what the delivery process would be. And it was like, okay, you send us your CDs and then a human being inputs all these the metadata from oh, the CDs onto a hard drive. Oh, and then we take these hard drives and we send them to this other company called LoudEye, which was a Sony-owned company. And LoudEye is going to take all this metadata and they're going to ingest it into their big, beautiful database. And then they're going to deliver that out to iTunes because at this time it was really iTunes and Napster was floating around, but it wasn't legal, right? And it wasn't part of the supply chain. And the estimated wait time from when you send us your CDs to when they go live on iTunes is nine months. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for when you get a podcast approved on iTunes, it takes up to 14 days. And I feel like that is the longest 14 days ever. So yeah. nine months is insane. Yeah. But, you know, at the time, everyone was like, well, hey, you know, this is like uh, free money. Like this is not a channel of distribution that or a format that's being monetized any other way. And um, I'm not even I'm sure that iTunes was actually taking people direct, but they didn't have a line of people out the door because it was unproven and people like, what is this, you know? <laughs> so The Orchard was actually the first independent company to have music on iTunes at launch. They had music on iTunes. So it was The Majors and The Orchard because of The Orchard Story, which is a different podcast, probably. <laughs> anyway, so we met each other then and we always stayed in touch. Then Ryko Disc was sold to Warner Music and um, our company, our team was integrated into ADA, which was the independent distribution arm for Warner Music. And they were interested in launching, you know, a robust international offering for their US labels. So that's what our team powered. And we operated on this Warner Music deals. You know, we didn't have any sort of platform or anything resembling what the Orchard does for distribution. But after sort of four years there and, and me remaining in touch with, with the Orchard and starting to see sort of where the industry was evolving, I thought, wow, I really want in, you know? Yeah, totally. So, so eventually then I, I came over to the Orchard as uh, the MD for UK and Europe. And that was in 2011. 
then I moved back to New York as the COO in, in 2013 because shortly after I joined, IOTA, that other competitor that I referenced to you, had been owned by Sony. The Orchards was owned by a private equity firm. Our private equity firm struck a deal with Sony to create a JV combining Orchard and IOTA. And the Orchard had the management structure and we had, you know, a couple people on the board. Sony had a couple people on the board and that's how we got started. So that was 2012. And when that happened, Brad was like, so are you going to come back and (laughs) help me run this? I was like, okay, let's do it. That's awesome. And you've obviously had quite an impact. Um, (laughs) Well, it's a team. True. It is definitely always a team effort. It's a big team. You know that. We have a big team here. Yes. So going back to sort of your work in in international markets, you know, you've been able to sort of oversee and expand the orchard from 25 to 46 global offices. So how did you manage that? We're going to keep going, too, by the way. So those 25 offices that were there on the ground are people that had also met the Orchard, largely, I have to say, through MEDEM, which is an annual conference um, that happens uh, in June now in the south of France and was, pub- was focused on publishing and the independent sector. So Orchard focused on that conference really early on and swept up these amazing people from around the world who had either family-owned record labels or distribution companies, or were just, they saw the vision and jumped in early. And it's with this group of people um, that were literally scattered at all points of the globe, you know, that we banded together and formalized how we were going to run this, you know. And so these the people that I'm talking about, in many cases, had been in territories where there was no way to make money off of digital music and, frankly, physical Distribution was also a, a loss-making proposition <laughs> toward the end. So they, yeah. but they had these, you know, intellectual property rights and no real way to monetize them in their own country. So as uh, digital started to spread across the globe and different formats came in, such as streaming, and they were able to light up countries where there had been no monetization previously. And so, as that happened, we were able to scale up our business in all these different pockets of the world and and go out and resource more great people to help us drive it forward. So, I mean, it really is a group effort, but um, it was a group of people that actually just had faith in in what this could be and said, fuck it, why not? (laughs) Jumped on board, you know? (laughs) So um, the Orchard's been in business 22 years and a lot of them have been with the company for 15-ish years. 15 or more in some cases. So I'm I'm not even at 10 yet. I'm still a newbie. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny to think about as someone who's been here four months. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how do you not only position yourself as a national leader, but also as a global leader in the music industry? Well, I think the key part there is trying to look at what we all have in common and, and highlight those shared experiences instead of looking at how everything is so different. In the old music paradigm, it would have been very difficult to have a global hit that wasn't sung in English, for example. And, you know, one of the areas where we were really successful is like taking a step back and saying, you know, let's look at the the global makeup of the population and what people want and where they're gravitating and not try to dictate what that hit will be, but empower our own labels and artists that we work with to be able to deliver out to their fan base and build their fan base. And now like we have two of the biggest global superstars in the world that are part of our company. And that would be, you know, Bad Bunny and and BTS. And neither of those people sing in English, by the way. And it really, (laughs) and they're not on mainstream radio and it really doesn't matter, you know? So 
to answer the global question, I think it's just about being open and empathetic and interested and, you know, educating yourself about what can be and not thinking about what can't be or what has been. Right. We live in a global world. It's interesting because it seems like you did a lot of sort of like moonshot thinking, if you will, like going back to like the Google days of like, we're going to map the world. And everyone's like, no, you can. And then, you know, sure enough, they did. So it's cool that you sort of did something similar in terms of not just being a national leader, but really expanding the company globally. So as a woman in a male dominated industry, how have you distinguished yourself and what advice do you have for other women who are trying to do the same I always try to look at the world as people first and gender or any other trait second. And within that, I want to highlight what special perspective or skills experience that I can bring to the situation. And that's really served me well throughout my career. I've had the opportunity to work with some incredible individuals that have afforded me the space to learn and and given me room to grow. You know, thoughts are things. If you enter a scenario or a role with gravitas and the presumption that you are equal, and you treat others with respect, there's a stronger chance that you'll get that back. So we're all just people at the end of the day, right? But of course, there are exceptions. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when you have to call on your inner strength and stand your ground, right? I mean, it's undeniable in in an environment that's dominated by men, women have to take some extra steps to get their ideas heard. Heat eating is real. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So true. So um, I would say, you know, it helps to have an ally, whether it's male or female, in your team or in a meeting in an environment that can help underpin ideas and back you up if you feel you need to call somebody out in general. And other than that, like, let's listen to your gut and believe in your passion. Clearly articulate your thoughts. Respect the team. You know, really united we stand. That's it. Right. And women have an incredible power to build and unite teams. So harnessing that is a way to really separate yourself from the pack. And people are either going to get on board or get out of the way. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I love that. (laughs) So nothing lasting was or great was built off of one person's efforts, really. So and women are so good at being able to pull people together and and motivate them and and lead them forward. So it's like a natural strength that I think that we have and maybe we don't utilize the way that we could in some respects. Absolutely. Well, what do you think that uh, men can be doing to be better allies in the workplace? Um, I have a few ideas. (laughs) Uh, That being said, I feel like I have great allies at the Orchard. And I think I've also been pretty lucky in my career to have had really great working environments. So I I really count myself lucky. I hear stories sometimes simple as my mind. But, you know, having your female colleagues backs in meetings, like I talked about before, or crediting them on their ideas and their output, instead of, for example, I... I knew a scenario once where a male boss would have his you know, female manager create reporting and then she would email it to him. He would remove her name and then send it out you know, to the organization as if he created it. It was like that overt. I wish everyone so. could see how much I'm rolling my eyes right now. <laughs> uh, well, I ended up... Um, I ended up bringing that person onto my team, the woman, not the man. And, awesome. you know, one of the first things I said to her was... I can promise you, I'm never going to take your ideas and send them out as my own. Like, I want you to be in the forefront presenting your work. 
and being recognized for your work. So whether it's male or female, anyone that does that, no. (laughs) (laughs) You know, putting them forward for leadership opportunities, giving them opportunities to represent the company, either industry events or, you know, wider meetings, making sure that they have gender parity across the department in terms of pay at the same level, of course. Resisting the urge to hire somebody that reminds you of yourself, whether that's a man or a woman, but, you know, men are, frankly, in more of the hiring opportunities right now. And so if if you really have to put down that urge to hire someone that, like, reminds you of, of you at a younger age or somebody that you want to, like, pal down with and really try to broaden the, the scope of voices at the table, shutting down locker room talk, that's pretty basic. But, you know, I think it probably still happens. It just has gone quieter and I don't hear it anymore. Calling out toxic masculinity, similar. Celebrating achievements of anybody on your team, male, female, what have you, and even, you know, men sharing domestic duties with their own partners. So they actually, you know, feel both sides of of life. Yeah, I think that's a (laughs) super important one. Yeah. Awesome. So I do want to jump topics a little bit and talk to you about any advice you would have for yourself if you could go back and tell yourself something as you were beginning your career. I think I would tell myself not to compare myself to everybody else all the time, you know, and not that I do that a lot, but I think everybody falls victim to thinking about, oh, I'm, you know, at this age, I should be making this much money or I'm at this age, I should be married and having a child or, you know, why don't I live in the house like this or why don't I drive a car like that? And that stuff's really not important, you know, like every. Every individual is different. So if you just really follow your gut and know that you'll know when you're in the right place, if you actually just be quiet and listen to yourself and then just, you know, follow your passion, then like money and success is going to come. It's not, I mean, my, my career was totally crazy. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're but yeah there awesome. were many times where I was like, oh, well, this isn't really what I'm supposed to be doing. But what does that even mean? Right? Yeah. No, I think that's great. You know, thinking about being in those early stages of your career, something that has been proven to often help people grow in their career is sponsorship. And, you know, oftentimes there's a credibility gap that women have to overcome and sponsorship can actually really help that. So what's your opinion on sponsorship and how managers and organizational leaders can work on sponsoring those who may not normally have opportunities to showcase their skills? I mean, I think it's awesome. I didn't know that it had a formal name called sponsorship. And I think that's that's wonderful. I thought you were talking about like the money I send to the AS- ASPCA or Save the Children. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I look back in my own career, I see that I had those opportunities. And I don't know whether it was out of necessity of not, you know, being in a small company where people weren't able to be in many places at one time. Or if it was just, you know, that they really wanted to mentor and grow their team. It's probably a combination of the two. Um, so, you know, like I mentioned before, sending people out in your place, like just because I run a certain area doesn't mean I have to be at the opening of every envelope that, you know, is related to that particular part of the industry. And and so sending someone else, you know, as your representative can be really powerful for both you and them because it expands the network of, of personalities and, and perspectives that are representative of the company. It also gives them a chance to shine and, and grow and develop their own network of people, uh, which in the end, if your team is strong, it makes you stronger. You know, the, the best leaders are the people that empower their team and sit back and watch them fly. So I'm all for it. And, you know, we probably don't do it as, as enough as 
as much as we should, um, because of the knee-jerk reaction is like, I need to be at this event or I need to be seen in this room. But okay, fine. Even if you need to be seen in that room, take someone else with you. Walk them around the room, introduce them to people, make sure that next time they can go on their own or, you know, that they have build their own relationships. It's all about empowering the next generation of leaders. Yeah, I, th- I think that's awesome. And I can say I've personally benefited a ton from sponsorship. So I think it's great. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to hear it. <laughs> I also feel I have. I didn't realize I was being sponsored at the time, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get imposter syndrome and how do you tackle and overcome it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think everyone has imposter syndrome. Whether or not they're willing to admit it is a different different thing altogether. But absolutely, I I definitely have it. I've had it this week. Um, I'll probably have it sometime next week or next month or what have you. Tackling it, you know, it's just like when that that bile starts to rise or that whatever I think it manifests itself in different ways for different people but for me it's like like a knot of insecurity like oh you know like a bit of nervousness it's like you just gotta stamp it down and just keep fucking going you know like you're in a situation because you're supposed to be there and, and at the end of the day we're all just people some people have accomplished different things in their life or you know whether it's financial or you know notoriety or fame what have you I am to the point now where I don't really get crazy about being around quote famous people anymore, which is great because if I did, it would be a problem in, <laughs> in this job. But um, there are one or two that I think I wouldn't be able to deal with. But, <laughs> but you know, I was thinking about this. I thought I'll probably have imposter syndrome, syndrome when I die. Show up at heaven and be like, am I allowed in here? You know? <laughs> no, I'm a good girl. I better be allowed. But but yes, I I mean, I've talked about this topic recently with people that I would would think they're more front facing, more in the public eye than I am. And they also have the same experiences and the same feelings. So, yeah, I get it. I think everybody gets it, whether or not they want to admit it. Yeah, it's nice to know we're sort of all together on that. (laughs) We're all just people. Yeah, totally. So in a music business worldwide article, you describe taking a leap of faith when joining the orchard. Were you scared? And how did you find the courage to go somewhere that didn't really have big labels? Obviously, now we're crushing it. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that it didn't seem great. It was just that it didn't really have a brand name. And actually, the way that the company was operating and their vision was so radically different than the way the mainstream music business was operating, that it was, you know, a little bit it wasn't necessarily scary. I just knew like I couldn't keep doing what I was doing, right? I was just like, if we have to keep sending these Excel spreadsheets back and forth at each other, like this is not, like there has to be a better way to harness technology to free us up again, to be able to work on strategy and allocate our marketing and and promotion resources in real time by being able to garner insights and really know where we're going and like get control. Like in the olden days, you would sort of listen to a record, you know, the artist would be signed, come in, he's like, okay, well, I think they have an affinity with this artist or that artist, but there'd be no proof. Like, oh, they, you know, they went on tour with this person, so they must share an audience or whatever. You'd say, I think it's going to sell. And it was really like a crapshoot, you know, especially with a lot of the new artists, which were the kind of artists that, that we would work with on the independent level. And so, you know, if I need to send my marketing budget needs to be X dollars per unit, like I'll spend X amount of money. And then like when it's done, it's sort of like you have to go back and beg the coffers for more and you don't get the sales results till much later. Like it was just completely broken. Wow. And seeing how the orchard 
was taking a completely different approach to it was so refreshing. And I thought, well, you know, this, they're really onto something and I don't really understand it all because I've never done it before. And it's again, super different from how the traditional industry was operating at that time. So it, it was a leap of faith in that perspective, but it definitely wasn't, you know, that it wasn't great. It was just, it was a lot of independent artists and labels that were kind of bubbling under the radar and and making a really great living, you know? I mean, I think a lot of people come into this industry are probably not now because the information is out there and it's transparent. It's much more um, open than it was before. But I think a lot of people came into the industry maybe 15 years ago thinking if I don't achieve X level on the charts or, you know, I'm not, you know, a platinum artist or whatever, I'm not successful. And being able to have money that's flowing in real time, not having to wait to get your royalties twice a year, you know, being able to clearly audit and project what that's going to be and know how you're going to manage your, your life and your career as an artist, that's game changing, you know. So I could see that that was a possibility. And I was like, you know, I'm definitely jumping on board here. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, when I asked our CEO, Brad, you know, who are your top labels and artists? He was like, I don't think you're actually going to be familiar with them because, <laughs> you know, they weren't a lot of them weren't even distributing physical product and they weren't on the charts. Now, it's a different story if we go out and we say because the industry has moved toward the orchard and the model. So that means we need to push ahead to what's next. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is where someone like you comes in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm excited about it. Diversity and inclusion is something that I know you're passionate about. And in an interview with um, Music Industry Insights by Midem, you were quoted by James Martin saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. <laughs> so what does that mean? And how can members of diverse groups get a seat at the table? <laughs> well, I, I love mean, that quote. <laughs> it literally means they're going to eat you alive. Like If you don't get your seat at the table, like, you know, they're going to run right over you. So how do you get your seat at the table? Well, we talked about a lot of different ways that you can achieve that if you're starting out in the business. I think just knowing your worth and feeling confident or projecting confidence, even when maybe you inside you have that imposter syndrome thing happening is a great first step, but also remaining humble and being a team player um, so that you can build a, a group that respects each other and is able to accomplish a goal. Again, going on that mentality that like you're much stronger together than you are, you know, trying to operate as a lone wolf inside an organization. And so that's how you get your seat at the table, right? You make your own table. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that could be the new quote. That's how you Let's get a seat at the table. table. Make exactly. your own table. It's not the kids' table, please. <laughs> yeah, not exactly. the Thanksgiving kids' table. <laughs> so I want to end on a positive note. Can you tell me what you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments, even though we've obviously talked about a lot today? <laughs> well, I think, you know, in a professional sense, I would have to say the time at the orchard because it's been so transformative inside the industry and for me personally. And we've talked about a lot of, of what that is, but we are now, you know, the leading company of our kind globally. And it's taken a little while to get here, but we're really, you know, just growing and growing and and focusing again on, on what's next so that we can keep our edge. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's great. And on a personal level, I think I made some, I, with, with not using a lot of money, actually, I made some 
shrewd real estate investments early on in my life, moved to some undesirable neighborhoods like Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And that's been really great because <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> I've been able to, you know, pay off my mortgages and actually give myself some security. So that is a, a great accomplishment for me personally, but I was able to do that, you know, through money that I made in the music business, which by the way, I wasn't getting paid very much. So that's why I'm saying like, you can be resourceful and, and, you know, build a a plan for yourself. I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. Loving your work. (laughs) Thank you. For more information about Boss Ladies, go to www.bossladiespodcast.com. Also check us out on Instagram at Boss Ladies Podcast. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies.